children can head out to children's church. And we who are left are going to finish out this sermon series that we've been talking about vital signs. The concept there being, just as the human body has vital signs, things that show, uh, one, whether it's alive or dead, but also uh, how healthy it is. We also have those same kind of things in our spiritual lives that we can use to assess the vitality of our lives. So last week we talked about the vital sign of resiliency, that something that is alive and healthy bounces back, it, it fights to live. We talked about the key aspects of resilience is defiance, defying the odds, whatever you want to say. It's not defying God, but defying everything else. Uh, we talked about reclamation, that those places where Satan uh, has, has had a hold of us from the past in our lives, we need to reclaim those for God's use. We need, talked about tenacity, the ability to fight through and to, and to not give up and end it with restoration. That's the ultimate goal, which is healing, to be restored to what it is God intended for us from the very beginning. So we're going to start this morning. This is our final vital sign we're going to talk about, and we're going to start in 1 John chapter 3. Verse 16 to 17. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers in need, or for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So John there makes it very clear. I mean, it's not even a question. He says, if God's love dwells in you, you will have generosity towards others, and the converse is also true. If you do not have generosity in your heart, you do not have the love of God inside of you. Now, when you talk about a vital sign, John is laying out probably the clearest one. If God is in you, if there is life in you, you are generous. If you are not generous, God's love is not in you. It just isn't present. So there really can't be a much more clearer vital sign for us to examine this morning than that. And so this is an extremely serious vital sign because God spends a lot of time in the scriptures talking about money, the use of money, the love of money, generosity and kindness and grace and forgiveness, all of these things. We are either a people who are taking out of the world or we are a people who are giving back to the world around us and we're going to look at this this morning. I want to start out by saying this and being very clear about this. This is not a giving sermon. It's not a sermon on giving. Now, that may be weird because you might say, well, wait a minute, generosity has to do with giving. No, that's, that's fine. But I want us to understand what I'm talking about this morning is not the act of giving. And I have heard a lot of sermons on the act of giving, the amount of giving, the way to give, uh, all of those things. I'm not interested in any of that this morning. Because you can compel people to act a certain way by guilt, by calls, by getting them excited. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to act, to get people to act and give. I'm not interested in that. What I read, what I read here is it's more than that. God is looking for generosity. He's looking for people who have the heart, who want to provide want to share. The act of giving becomes irrelevant to a person who's generous. So we're not talking about the act of giving. We're
we're talking about having a generous heart, a generous mind, living a generous life. So let's get started. I want us to look at a couple of scriptures. I want us to examine a couple of key truths this morning to help us help us get into a generous mindset. So let's begin with Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. This is after Adam and Eve. They have eaten the forbidden fruit, and uh, sin has now come into the world, changed the world drastically. God is letting them know exactly what kind of a world we have created, what kind of a world we have unleashed now. He says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the first truth that we learn this morning is that loss is compulsory. Compulsory means it is not optional. It's going to happen. You cannot prevent it. It is mandated. You might as well get it in your head. Loss is going to happen. And when I read Genesis chapter 319 right there, what I see is God letting us know, it is not, this is not some oh, life lesson that we tend to learn, which is I gain, I lose, or the, uh, you know, God gives, God takes away. It's, it's not even that kind of a mentality. It's not uh, where, where I go through life and I just, I just accept the ups and downs of life. This is not that. This is God saying everything about you is borrowed and will be removed from you. Everything will be removed from you. The very body that you are cascading through this world in on a borrowed breath of life that God breathed into your nostrils, all of it is going to be gone. You are going to, uh, as he says there, this body of dust is going to go back to dust. That breath of life that is inside of you, that spirit, it is going to return to the one who breathed it into our nostrils. Everything you have. Then if you realize that we are nothing more than borrowed dust and borrowed energy inserted into a borrowed world, what do we have? Loss is compulsory. We are going to give it all back. Ecclesiastes 5.15, the writer there says it this way. He says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Borrowed body, borrowed breath, borrowed world, borrowed families, borrowed homes, borrowed existence, borrowed years, borrowed time, borrowed space. It's all going to go away. And there is nothing, nothing you can do about it. As a preacher, there's a lot of uh, interesting funeral stories that we, that we come across. That, 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 well, boy, that sounds really bad, doesn't it? You know, funny v- funeral stories. But I'm, I'm telling you, ask me sometime. I've got, I've got weird doozies. Like thing, things that happen to funerals that I cannot believe actually occurred. Insanity. Well, let's not get into that. But there was one. Uh, I heard this story one time that this happened. There was a, a, a gentleman in, in the church. They're not in a church. It was a, it was a gentleman who had uh, spent his life saving up. 
what he had done was uh, he had been born prior to the Great Depression. He had been raised as a child through that time period and had learned. His, his parents had ingrained in him the concept that you have to scrimp and save and, and, and set aside everything you have. You've got to wash the tin foil to reuse it. My, my grandmother was like that, right? He just had that in his mindset that you, you just put it away, put it away. And so the time came when he was ill and he was in the hospital and it was very obvious that he, he did not have long for this world and he wasn't going to uh, last. He called in his son and, and he told his son, he said, he said, son, I'm getting ready to leave. And he said, uh, I've socked away everything I've had over all of these years and I've accumulated, we've got about $2 million in assets. He said, so you are the executor of my will. You're the one to make it happen. So I just want to go over with you what it is that you are supposed to do. When I die, you are to wait the funeral until you have liquidated all of my assets. I want it all liquidated. Son said, why? why? Okay, yeah, but why before the funeral? He said, because I, I want all of it buried with me. Now the son goes, wait, what? You, you want everything? You want all $2 million? How am I going to? And he starts arguing with his dad about it. His dad said, you don't. It's not up to you. I've determined. I'm going to prove that you can take it with you, that it doesn't have to be left to anyone else. It's mine. It's going to get buried with me. They get into a massive argument. Finally, the son realizes there's absolutely nothing that he can do. I mean, the money is his father's to do with as he wills. If he wants to be buried with it, he's going to be buried with it. He goes, all right, dad, I'm going to do it. Whatever. So the time comes. The man dies. So the son waits until he's able to liquidate the estate and get everything into, into an account. And he, he opens an account and he gets everything into it. He, he you know, for whatever reason, he's got to be able to keep it all um, uh, lined up and he's got it all there, $2 million. So he sets up the funeral and it was a lovely service. It went, it went great. I don't think anyone called the man generous, but, you know, it, it was a good service. They went through, and, and, and everyone's sharing and crying and having their moments. At the end, as sometimes do, sometimes families leave. Sometimes they do one last, uh, they open up the, the casket one last time, and the family goes by or people go by and say, say their final farewells. And they did that. And so they go by, the son's at the end. Funeral director was sitting there, and he's watching all of this happened. He notices the son's the last one. He comes up, and the son pulls something out, and he, and he watches the son take a folded piece of paper and, and put it in his, in his dad's suit pocket. Well, I thought that was, that was kind of weird. And so everyone goes out, and they're all, they're all sitting there sharing for a while. People start starting to, to meander out and heading off to the, to the dinner that was waiting. And the funeral director was just kind of curious. So he went up to, he went up to the son, and he said, he said look, I, I've got a question for you. If I'm being rude, just tell me it's none of my business. But I like, I like hearing the stories of what it is that people leave with their, with their loved ones. And he said, what, what, did you, what did you put in his, suit, in his suit coat? And the son said, well, my dad had scrimped and saved and saved up $2 million. And he ordered in his will that, that he buried with, with, all of his, with all of the assets. He said, so I did it, liquidated everything, put it into an account, and he said, I was, uh, I put the check in his suit coat for $2 million, and he's got 90 days to cash it. The point being, even if you take that step to take it with you, 
I mean, there it is. Legal tent, legally thrown in, buried with it. He's got 90 days to cash it. And of course he doesn't. It's impossible. No matter what we do, no matter, no, no matter how healthy we try to be, we're going to lose it all. No matter, no matter how much we scrimp and save, we're going to lose it all. Loss is compulsory. Now, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be morbid. Let me, I want to, I want to make that clear. I'm not trying to be morbid, where, where it's just a message, you know, hey, this is the great Halloween sermon. You're, you're, you're dead. Okay, it's, it's not that. But there is the reality that in order to properly understand what is supposed to happen between the nothingness becoming something and the something becoming nothing again, that end part has to be a part of our mindset to understand and to put in context what all of this in between is. What is this about if the end result is the ultimate and complete loss of everything? And understanding that loss is compulsory becomes a cornerstone key truth at the base of generosity. It's what empowers us to be generous. Let's go, let's go to the second truth, and we'll explain that a little bit more. 2 Corinthians 9, 5 to 7. Paul says, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange, ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exactation. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, you may sit there and say, boy, there was a whole lot of giving. I thought we weren't talking about giving this morning. We're not. We're not talking about giving. And that is exactly, in my opinion, what Paul's point there is. He says the giving has to be, whatever you give in life, whatever you share, whatever you do, it's got to come out of your heart. It's got to be what you have determined to set aside. And he said ultimately, what did he say there at the end? That everyone must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly, nor under compulsion. Generosity is not compulsory. Generosity is voluntary. And Paul understands that. And he's appealing to them to understand that generosity, it is not, it, it is not required. You, don't ha- you do not have to be a generous person. I mean, you have a choice. You are going to lose it all. It's all going to be gone. It's all going to be taken away. None of it belongs to you. But you know what? If you want to spend your 80, 90 years in this life grabbing as much as you can and fighting and spitting against anybody who would ever come and try to take anything away from you, you are welcome to do that. You can go to your grave fighting for your last piece of this life. But the end result is the same. See, when we understand that the end result is that we lose, how futile is it to live a life where we choose to just consume and take and acquire Ultimately, what you have is going to be given or taken. And, and, and that's where the voluntary is. 
am I going to give it? Or is it going to have to be peeled out of my hand? And how futile it is to fight the inevitable. Interestingly enough, if you, if, if you think about it, Why do we want to hold on to, why do we want to acquire and hold on to? Because it gives us the, the feeling of control, right? We have control of ourselves. We have control of our money. We have control of our environment. But here's the funny thing. When I die and I have held on to everything and I have not been generous and what I have is taken, I absolutely have no control over who it goes to. But if I'm generous in this life, I actually truly have control. I decide where it goes. I decide what it does. I decide what ministries and what people it blesses. So holding on to it gives me the the feeling of control when I am actually unable to control what happens with it when I'm gone. But in this life, if I am generous and I give it away, that generosity gives me control over that money. It's the generosity that actually allows me to determine what happens with that which I have acquired. It it boggles my mind so much how backwards the way we think in the world, outside of Christianity, how it seems to make sense. Well, if I hold on to it, I have more control. And God's going, no, you idiot. You hold on to it, then other people take it and do what they want with it. You actually don't have control. Everything's backwards. What Christ teaches is is what we're actually looking for. You want to control your funds, be generous. But generosity, it's, it's voluntary. So look at this, Matthew 21. Here's an interesting passage. Most people, we skip over this. We're like, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Matthew 21, 18 and 19. In the morning, as Jesus was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. You go into churches, you see all kinds. You see all kinds of pictures, pictures of Jesus. You know, right? Right? We got we got Jesus in the garden, Jesus with the little kids, Jesus petting sheep. I've never been in a church seen a stained glass picture of Jesus striking down a fig tree. Just it's not there. Why? We like the ones where he's being friendly with kids because then we feel like kids and he's being friendly with us. And then we see him with sheep and we know that we're sheep and he's being friendly with us. And, oh, hey, there he is. He's getting ready to die for us. And what a great thing. And then we hear the story of Jesus uh, 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 frying a fig tree and we're going, ooh, who am I in this story? I'm the fig tree. I, I don't, that story isn't, isn't, isn't the warm, friendly one. What is the point of the story we normally ignore? Let me explain it the way I understand it, the way I see it. Jesus is walking along, and he sees a plant. In the beginning, God said, I have given. He said to Adam and Eve, I have given you all seed-bearing green plants, all green plants that bear seeds. I have given, to, I have given them to you for food. So Jesus is walking along. The Son of God is hungry. The Son of God has a need, and he comes across a plant whose job it was created to feed. But it was not generous. It provided no food. And so it received its compulsory loss. The end result, whether now or a year later or three years later, however long, that tree was going to die. 
Jesus was teaching his disciples a very clear message. You're either living for generosity, you're either living to serve, you're living to give, or you're living to die. Which is it? I think that's what he was teaching in that lesson. You and I are the fig trees. When Christ comes, what does he find? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 12. Um, He's speaking because there was a famine that was going on in Jerusalem, and actually in all of Judea, and the Christian uh, brothers, the Jewish Christians, were suffering. And so he wrote to them, and, and, and they had gone out, and a lot of churches had pledged money in order, they were going to raise money to offset some of the famine for the brothers. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor in taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this, listen to what he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also a desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I want to focus on that last sentence right there. I mean, you go through this. Here's what I hear Paul saying. When you see a need, do you have a heart that wants to meet it? Understand, God is not a bean counter. He's not coming to you. He's not trying to assess what you have and decide if you've given the right amount. He's looking for people who want and desire, who are ready. To be generous, that's what he wants. He wants a generous people. God is not here trying to force people to do the act of giving. Because that's meaningless. I mean, we could do that. That's one of the reasons why I I don't do a lot of giving sermons. Because if you're not a generous person, giving to them means nothing. I'm sorry, that's what it says. If it isn't in your heart, my making you do it out of my my guilting you into doing it ain't going to do a thing. If the readiness is there, 
it's acceptable. That's what he's looking for. A heart that offers, not the offering. And he's not looking and trying to figure out what, he just isn't that way. Do you, who are you? But I also noticed in that passage, one of the other words that was used was he says, he says, you've made this commitment to be generous. And he says, this is an act of grace. What is grace? Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. Receiving something you didn't earn, something you didn't deserve, something that, 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 that you could not expect to have uh, happen to you. And that's going to lead us into this, this next. Let's, let's read this, and we'll do the, the third point. Luke 6, 37 to 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That tells us, and I want to explain this, generosity is gain. This is, I love, I love the wisdom of God because it just completely goes against everything that we humanly, that just seems to naturally come to us. How, does, how is giving gain? That doesn't seem to make any sense. But see, now in that passage we read before, God, uh, Paul talks about how, uh, how giving and generosity, it is a gift of grace. And you notice in this passage in Luke, what does Jesus say? He doesn't just say give. He talks about, he says, he says don't condemn and you won't be condemned. Don't judge and you won't be judged. Uh, uh, give and it's going to be given back to you. Forgive and you will be forgiven. What is he saying there? He's saying that, that, that all of the generosity is just an act of grace. And the first person you look to who gave you the ultimate grace was Jesus Christ, who left heaven, left the riches, came down, was in poverty, and because of his poverty, he gave you, he gave us everything. We are recipients of heaven. Everything has been given to us. And now he says, now God has given you grace. Now you go and give grace to others. And if you will do so, even more grace will be given to you. This is what it is. It is an act of grace. When I was a kid, I looked forward to Christmas because I got toys. That, that was the only reason. I looked forward to Christmas because I got toys. I don't, look, I, don't, I don't look forward to Christmas because I get presents now. Most of us who have kids, that, that is not even where Christmas is in our head anymore. We look forward to Christmas because we get to show our love through gift giving. It's, it's a grace. We know how it made us feel, and we want to share that feeling with our kids and with our grandkids. That's why Jesus said it's more, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. First Timothy six seventeen to 19 says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, 
and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So we started, we started the, the first truth was this, loss is compulsory, you're going to lose everything. You want to keep it because you want to control it, but the only way you control it is actually by being generous. And so we realize that while loss is compulsory, generosity, though is voluntary, we get to choose to be that way. But then this last truth seems to, seems to throw the others kind of, but, but it doesn't. And, that, and that, that is that the generosity is gain. I don't, I haven't flushed this completely out theologically, so I'm going to share something that isn't here. It, it's very clear, but man, I, I, I don't, I don't exactly know the specifics. But the scriptures are pretty clear. That you have the ability to store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Jesus said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He tells us, well, in, right here. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share, for by doing so, you are storing up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation so that you may have true life. It's interesting because the things that we do in this life, it's, it isn't about salvation. That, come, that comes through a, a, a faith and an acceptance in Jesus Christ. But the scriptures seem to indicate that our generosity in this life is building for us some treasure. And that's where I, beyond that, I can't say because I don't know what that treasure is. I don't know what that treasure looks like. I don't know what that foundation is for our future existence and eternal life. But it has something to do with that life. And I also know, and here's another one, and I, oh, I, I thought of this this morning, and I, it's not in here, and I wish I had it. So I'm going to paraphrase it. You go find the passage and, and, and figure out how my paraphrase is wrong. But there is a passage where Paul specifically says, he says that there are those who are going to try to build for the Christians, who are going to try to build for themselves a life in this existence. And he says they're going to build all of these things and when the end comes and the fire consumes the earth, it will consume everything that they have made, everything they have built, everything they they have accumulated. They will lose it all. But, Paul says, they will escape the fire by the skin of their teeth. Meaning, they will be saved, but they will have nothing to show for it in the next life. There will be no treasure. Other than salvation, there's nothing waiting on the other side necessarily. It's very interesting when you start putting these together and you realize, the more we hold on to this life, the less is waiting for us. Again, I don't know what that is. I just know the scriptures are pretty clear about it. So though everything in this life is loss, you will lose it all, no matter how much you fight. 
generosity is voluntary. And when you are generous in the name of Jesus, you are setting aside for yourself something, whatever it is, some treasure that is building a foundation for your life in eternity. I'm already going to lose it all here. And the promise is, if I give it in his name, he stores up for me there. Then generosity, when I give, it isn't lost at all. God has turned this reality of the world on itself. Giving is the only way. Generosity is the only way you gain. It's the only way. And so I want to end with this, because I ended up with my three nice truths, and then I realized this one, which just kind of puts them all together. Look at this. So I wrote down ultimate truth, but it's not ultimate. Generosity is letting go of what will be lost in order to create that which cannot be taken. What I have in this life is going to be taken. The promise is if I give it freely, if I share with those in need, if I have a heart for generosity, a heart to, to forgive as I was forgiven, to give as I have been given to, if I have a heart like that, I am building up for myself something in heaven that cannot be taken. Thief cannot sneak in and steal. Rust cannot destroy. Moth cannot consume. It cannot be taken from me. said that Christ became poor so that we might become rich. I, I, want, I, want, I, want to end, I want to end with this thought. When Christ came into the world, into, he had flesh, he had breath just like us, he knew it was going to be taken from him. And he didn't fight it. He didn't try to take, he gave. He healed, he ministered, he taught truth, and ultimately, ultimately, in the greatest act of sacrifice, the greatest act of offering, the greatest act of generosity. He laid down his life for us. It was all removed from him. But here's why this sentence up there on the screen is true. The moment he lost everything, he created something that cannot die, something that cannot fail, something that cannot be taken away from him came into existence. And that is his church, his bride. He said the gates of hell cannot overcome her. sacrificed. He was generous. And the church was created. So I want you to understand this morning, please. I, as a pastor, I'm not interested in your giving. I, I'm just not. We talk about it sometimes, but that's just not that's, I'm not. But I'm pleading with you to understand that God is looking for people with generous hearts 
who understand that what you have right now, the things that we think are important are all going to be taken away. They're all going to be snatched out of your hand. Someone is going to steal it. But you right now, if you are willing to surrender yourself as he surrendered, you will create something that cannot be taken away. You will create something that will last beyond this life so that while everybody else loses and has nothing to show for it, Christ, when he welcomes you in, will welcome you into your reward. That's amazing. It is to me. So we're going to stand. Go ahead and stand. We're going to sing our song of invitation. And I just want to invite you that if you have, if you have not, you know that he gave it all for you. If you have not yet given it all to him, you can do so this morning. Just come forward while we sing together. Lay it all down in order to, well, gain. Gain everything.